Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 343. I feel like I'm missing something. My name is Caleb Haig. I am missing something. The chat room is right. I am nothing without the Hoff. But uh, I'm going to try to do this anyway and uh, see how it works out. Let's see here. We already got people. <laughs> the chat room's already blowing up. Um, so I think Rob is writing a paper today. I, I don't actually know. I think I think that's what's going on. Um, yeah, so here I am, all by my lonesome. But you know what, we're gonna have some good times. I'm gonna say the same thing that I say every time that I uh, try to run this show by myself. Probably not gonna be a full hour, probably gonna cut it short whenever I'm done talking. And uh, every time I say that, guess what happens? We go a full hour. So. Uh, we got an interesting email, and that's actually why I wanted to do, do this show without Rob, is because I thought, you know what, I want to talk about that. Uh, it comes on the heels of our conversation uh, for the past couple of weeks looking at Easter, and really we were looking at the term Easter, and last week I talked a little bit about the notion that within the Torah movement at large, whatever you want to call that, uh, people seem to think that everything is pagan. If it's attached to the church, it must be pagan. And so uh, that, uh, that's kind of the, I think this comes from like the Hislop to Babylons and Lou White fossilized customs. Those were big books. And I think that people within the Torah movement have kind of adopted this notion that uh, all of that's true and just accept it. One of the things that I've seen recently online uh, is this idea of, uh, I think I said this last week, the idea of um, uh, Easter is pagan, no questions asked or without question, something to that effect. And that's really kind of like the, the spirit of the Torah movement when it comes to things pagan. I think for a long time, we have uh, just decided that uh, everything is pagan. And we don't ask any questions about it. Okay, let's look at the chat room real quick. I'm glitchy. Uh, glitchy on the on the video. Okay, I don't know how to fix that, honestly. Um, yeah, I think we're going to have to uh, just accept it for now. But the audio is still clear. Okay, good. Well, you're going to have to go with the audio. Um, I'm actually, so I'll give you a little insight into the uh, production of this. Uh, I'm actually working really hard to get a, uh, a, uh, a really nice camera set up in here. And I was going to have that set up today, but unfortunately, uh, that camera needed a little attachment and uh, it's, uh, it didn't come. It didn't come yet. So hopefully today, which means that by next week, I'll have a new camera. Okay. So I apologize for the glitchy camera, but... Uh, uh, that's about all you got. And yeah, unashamed of Jesus. The bobblehead is an idol. That's nah, not an idol. That's Spurgeon. I, I still think that the idea of getting a bobblehead uh, camera is a good idea. Okay, so let's read this. Uh, let's read this email. Actually, before we do that, uh, you can always be a part of our conversations. 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also shoot me an email. Chegatorresource.com. C-H-E-G-G at Torresource.com. Of course, this show is produced by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource and find all sorts of free stuff. And uh, yeah, you can also pay for stuff too if you want to. Uh, find past shows on MessiahMatters.com. And as always, please do me and Rob a favor by clicking the subscribe button and liking this video. Okay, now that we got all that out of the way, let's go to this wonderful email that we got. So, hang on just one second. I got to pull this up. And I'll bring this over here if I can get it. There we go. Okay. Here is the email in question. It says, I apologize. Give me one second here. It says, okay, this is from um, the John 17 Project, who's normally in our chat room. I don't know if John 17 Project is in our chat room right now or not. Um so this is, uh, this is yeah, just an email that was sent in. It says, from your last video, I was wondering what your thoughts are on something. So I, have decided, so I have a couple of questions. While I agree we shouldn't label everything not explicitly spelled out in Scripture as pagan, I do wonder if there's a good reason for the tendency for believers 
to do this. Constantine made the day of the sun worship into a Sabbath in 321. Okay, uh, let's talk about this. Let's stop right there. This email goes on, but we're going to stop right there. Um, so the notion that uh, that Constantine, let's talk about Constantine for a few minutes because I think a lot of people think I, I hear a lot of uh, a lot of Christians and a lot of believers blame everything on Constantine. Oh, if it weren't for Constantine, you know, Constantine made everything pagan. That's kind of one of the things that we hear a lot. Um, so a little background on Constantine. Constantine became a believer. This is this is uh, debated among scholars. What was the level of of Constantine's uh, conversion? So in three twelve, Constantine is fighting and he comes to the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And at this battle, before the night before the battle, he has a vision. And this is so goes the story, right? There are some scholars who say this never happened. Some scholars say that uh, this uh, this happened, but it didn't happen the way it's said to have happened. Some people say that the the symbol that he saw in his vision was actually a pagan symbol and then the Christians just made it their own. Kind of like we say that the, you know, on this show, we say a lot of the time that the Jews took Christian things and just said, oh, we had it first. So there is some historical legitimacy to this, uh, to this story. And you can see the, one of my favorite historians, I've said this many times, is Ryan Reeves. You can find his YouTube videos. He's a young historian. Um, I believe he's at Gordon Conwell. Maybe he's not anymore. Anyway, the, the, uh, that's totally beyond the point. Uh, he, he has made a huge catalog of YouTube videos on church history, and every single one of them is dynamite. I actually linked his video to Constantine in this video. So if you'd like to take 33 minutes out of your day, I would highly recommend it. I really enjoyed watching his video on Constantine. I learned a lot. And uh, so he argues that uh, the vision that uh, Constantine had, whether or not Constantine actually had the vision or not, that's beyond the point. We know that the uh, Cairo, uh, and okay, let's, let's actually talk about this vision first. In the vision, uh, Constantine supposedly sees the cross and he is given a symbol and uh, the symbol is two Greek letters put together. It's a chi and a rho and the Cairo symbol is a representation of the name Christ. And so what he does is he uh, he's told in this vision that if he puts this symbol on his on his shields and he represents this symbol as he goes up to the battle of the Milvian Bridge that he will win. And so he, this is what he does. He puts, uh, so goes the story, so, so goes the legend. He puts this symbol on his, on his shields and on his men. And lo and behold, what happens? He wins. He wins this battle. And so he says, aha, this is because of this God, Jesus, this God Christ. And, and so he converts and becomes a Christian. Now, there is also debate whether or not Constantine, Constantine actually becomes a Christian. Some of the debate actually centers around whether or not uh, Constantine becomes uh, monotheistic. In other words, was Constantine a, a true believer in Jesus and in the God of the Bible, the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament, or was Constantine a pagan who just saw uh, Christ as the head God or the most powerful God, or maybe the God of, of Rome? the God that was ruling over his region, the God that would actually help him in his battles. And not the only God, but simply maybe the strongest God. And I actually tend to lean towards the second scenario, that Constantine was not monotheistic, that Constantine believed in multiple gods, and that when he won the battle at the bridge, what actually happens is Constantine now decides to follow Christ, not because he thinks that the God of the Bible is in fact the only true God, but because Constantine believes that this is the strongest God who has given him the victory. And so this is kind of the, uh, the, the turning point. Now, it doesn't really matter what Constantine believed in terms of whether or not he was monotheistic or not. 
uh, at least not for our conversation. Uh, it, what matters is the fact that Constantine now becomes, he claims Christianity in 312. And then in 313, we have the verdict of, or the edict rather, the edict of Milan. And uh, the, the edict of Milan, a lot of people believe that this made Christianity the official uh, religion of Rome. But that's not actually the case. As Ryan Reeves argues, it actually just made the uh, religion of Christianity not against the law. It made it lawful to be a Christian. And this is really the, the tide that turns within the Roman Empire. Okay, I'm going to stop real quick and see what the, uh, what the chat room is saying to me. Okay. Um... Constantine sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in that sense, Rome, the mother of harlots. Okay, yeah, so I completely agree that we have a lot going on within the history of the Roman Empire and Constantine. So I don't want to give Constantine a free pass here. That is not what I'm trying to do. All I'm trying to do is give you a little bit of background. One of the things that we do see with Constantine, however, is the fact that he is desperately attempting to unite Christianity. In fact, I think that this is actually his role in the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so Constantine actually brings together and essentially sponsors, he pays the money for the, for the Council of Nicaea to come together. But is he instrumental in the decisions of the Council of Nicaea? Anyone who's anti-Trinitarian is going to say yes. They're going to say, oh, see, Constantine decided that uh, he, he's the one who created the Trinity doctrine. This is absolutely false. In fact, most historians agree that once the Council of Nicaea starts and once uh, Constantine kind of kicks things off, he's kind of out of the picture. We don't really see him anymore. Uh, it doesn't seem as though he's involved in any of the decisions or anything like that. So what, what is he trying to do at the Council of Nicaea? Co what Constantine wants to do is he wants to bring a unified front of Christianity. He wants to unite believers around this religion. Now, whether or not his motives were were legitimate or were uh, like his he had the right motives in doing this, that's beyond the point. What he's trying to do is he's trying to follow this this uh, God and this religion that whether or not he's a full-on true Christian or not, that's beyond the point. He is trying to follow this God and this religion. But what he sees is these factions of fighting around the empire from different Christians. He sees splits within theology. And so what he's trying to do is bring together Christianity. So with all of that said, hang on, I want to go back to the chat room real quick. Isn't uh, his mother the one who found the peace of the cross in Jerusalem then made the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which still stands. Yeah, so this is a good question. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, if you don't know, I think it's I think it's five churches put together, maybe seven. Uh, and what they claim is that the there's the stations of the cross within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, Constantine and his mother uh, came, and I, his mother was the instrumental one in actually building the church on the site that it still stands. Basically what they said is that uh, within the church, you can go to these different stations and see the cross. You can see where he was uh, crucified. You can see where he was laid in the tomb, uh, so on and so forth. So so they have this idea that all of it is within, I don't know, I've, I've actually walked it in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre before. Uh, it's, it's not a long walk at all, but uh, they basically today, people say it all happened here. Whether or not she found a piece of the cross, that's, that is, <laughs> I mean, do I think she found a piece of the cross? No. Did she claim to find the, a piece of the cross? Yeah, I, I think she may have. But this this actually goes into a whole different realm of theology and history. And that is the notion of relics and what was going on with relics uh, in the 4th and 5th centuries. And all around that time, uh, the idea of relics, even to this day, still stands. So totally different conversation. Um, but let's actually, let's touch on the Holy Sepulchre real quick. Uh, I think that there is good evidence that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is actually placed on the site where Christ may have been crucified. I know, I know. Send your emails now. You can you can try to slay me all you want on that one. The reason I believe that is because there has been really good scholarship done to show that there were uh, the the place where the uh, that is traditionally seen as the uh, location of the upper room. Within, I think in the second century, it became a church and uh, the, there was actually a place for a Torah scroll in it. 
But the Torah scrolls in all of the synagogues, they point down towards Jerusalem and or in Jerusalem, they point down towards the uh, towards the Temple Mount. So when people are praying, they pray towards the Temple Mount in this specific church, which uh, was one of the earliest churches that they've found. It actually points up directly towards the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So at the very least, what is believed by scholars, good scholars, by the way, is that it was at least an early tradition that Christ was crucified uh, up towards the outskirts of the uh, of Jerusalem, where the Holy Sepulchre is today. So I've been convinced by some of the arguments, some of the archaeological arguments. There, you can find some really good art, uh, online uh, articles by good scholars. I think JSTOR has a couple of them actually, and I, there might be some free ones online as well. Okay, we're off topic. Let's get back. So back to the. Let's get back to this. So, okay. So while I agree we should, shouldn't should label everything not explicitly spelled out in scripture as pagan, I do wonder if there is a good reason for the tendency for believers to do this. Constantine made the uh, made the day of sun worship into a Sabbath in 321. Okay, is this actually what happened? I would actually challenge this. Did Constantine uh, declare that Sunday was a day of rest? Yes, he did. Absolutely. Did he do this because uh, he was trying to worship the sun? No. In fact, I think that he's once again going back to this notion that Constantine is trying to uni unite Christianity. There is really good evidence, I think, uh, I think really strong evidence that the Christian church has moved the uh, worship of the Sabbath to a Sunday. Now, we could discuss this. This could be an entire show, the the moving of the, of the Sabbath to Sunday. Um, I don't think that it was done out of malicious intent. Uh, and that might surprise people. What I think happens is you have a predominantly Gentile group of people. Many of them are slaves and many of them have to work all day on Shabbat. And so what we see even in the scriptures is that people are, uh, are, are worshiping on the Sabbath all the way into the night of Saturday, which in the first century meant it was actually Sunday. And I think that this progression uh, and because of Easter, which we're going to talk about here in just a few seconds, this progression ultimately makes the uh, the the church want to celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday morning, and they do that. I don't, once again, I don't think it's out of malicious intent. Now, once we get a little bit later, then I think we have some malicious intent. But by the time Constantine comes in 321 and makes Sunday a, a, an official day of rest for the Roman Empire, I don't think he's doing it because he hates the Jews. Um, now, is there anti Was That's a good question. It's a question that we could ask. Um, you know, was Constantine anti-Semitic? I don't, I haven't seen any specific evidence for that. And we'll talk more about what it means to be anti-Semitic specifically in the first century. Okay. Was the Pope a thing? I'm looking at the chat room now. Let's take a quick break and look at the chat room. Um, okay. Unashamed of Jesus starts. We'll start with this one. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Yeah, this is uh, Acts 20, right? Acts 20 verse. Oh, I'm sorry. They gave the reference. Acts 20 verse 7. Um yeah, so a lot of Christian commentators, a lot of Christian scholars believe that this proves that the, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. I don't see it like that. In fact, to break bread, many scholars say that this is a reference to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. I also don't see that. I believe that the term to break bread uh, throughout the first century means to have a meal. So I believe that this is basically saying on the first day of the week when they came together to eat, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued this message until midnight. Um, I, I see this as, let me give an analogy of this. My father and I have traveled a lot and I've basically just carried my, my father's briefcase uh, while he spoke. I mean, I'm happy to go and, and assist him in whatever he needs when he speaks. Uh, the Philippines is a really good example of this. So when we go to the Philippines, we've I've been to the Philippines now three times. Uh, there's a group there, actually several groups, really wonderful believers. And when we go there, my father has been asked to, to teach sometimes eight hours a day. And uh, because they have brought my father from Washington State in the United States over to the Philippines 
people ha- like people want to hear everything he has to say. So even after he's done teaching, people are constantly trying to get, you know, he'll put in 10, 12 hour days just lecturing and talking to people because they, they want advice. They want to know about this theology or what do you think about this? And so I think the same thing is true in Acts 20. When Paul comes uh, to Ephesus, they want, they have a community. They have these ideas. They have these these theologies that they want, uh, you know, they, they want to ask Paul about. And so I think that it's saying that they come together on Sunday, he's leaving the next day, and they're going to take up his his time because he's leaving. And so they eat, and I believe that that's, is that the story of Eutychus? Yeah, I think that's the story of Eutychus, right? He, he speaks all the way into the night, and then Eutychus falls out of the, out of the, uh, win, uh, out of the window and, and dies, and then Paul brings him back to, to life. Here's a side note. This is a total rabbit trail. But notice that the focus of that story is not Paul bringing someone back to life. The focus of that story is Paul continuing to teach. So I think that Luke in that story is highlighting the gospel message is even more important than the works that Paul is doing. Anyway, okay, so that let's go back. Uh, was the Pope a thing? That's a loaded question. We're talking fourth century. No, I believe that the Roman Catholic Pope becomes a thing in the fifth to sixth century. Certainly things are moving that way. There is a bishop of Rome at this point or someone who is overseeing the churches in Rome. But the Pope did not have universal authority or authority over the over the other churches. And actually, when we look at the, the progression of the Pope, the Pope wants to have uh, wants to have authority over all of the churches. This is one of the big splits between the East and the West. And this comes to a head in the 10th century with the uh, with the filioque, right? And the notion that the, so in the Nicene Creed, what happens is that the Pope, or not the Pope, but the Catholic Church adds this term and the son, filioque, uh, meaning uh, so that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. And the Eastern Orthodox Church says, whoa, 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 you can't do that. And why do they say that? They say that because they basically the, the theology is only a council can add something to one of the accepted creeds. The Pope cannot add something and the church cannot just all of a sudden add something, which they're pointing the finger at the Catholic Church. And so at, at this point, all the way up into the 10th century, you have this, this fighting between East and West on whether or not the Pope has authority. And ultimately, this is this is one of the great breaks in the church. The filioque controversy uh, has been a, a, a point of contention and a rift in the Catholic Church, if we want to use the big C Catholic Church, ever since the 10th century and even before and all the way up into the 20th century. And even in the 50s, they were still... Um, they were still uh, debating this this topic, and the church is still split there. All of this to say, no, I do not believe that the Roman Catholic idea of the Pope and his authority had been established at this point in the 300s. Okay, let's keep going. Um, nobody is taking this. Okay. Okay, so let's get back to it. Where were we? Okay, so I think that it is my personal opinion that... that uh, that Constantine does not make Sunday the official day of rest because he's anti-Semitic or even because he is trying to change the Sabbath. I just don't believe that. I think what happens is he becomes a Christian. Christianity is already worshiping on Sunday and uh, they have already, this is a well-established ritual and tradition within the church by uh, the fourth century. All Constantine does is try to unite the Roman Empire. Remember that when Constantine becomes a Christian, it's not like Constantine can just say, hey, I'm a Christian, now everybody else be a Christian too. He's still the ruler of a pagan nation. So what he's trying to do is is slowly bring in this this belief uh, into a pagan nation and a nation that is has based its entire function around the gods. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to change this. So he does this bit by bit. And one of these things that he does is he says, hey, we're gonna have a day of rest now on Sunday. Well, why does he do that? Ultimately, he does that because the Christians are already worshiping and already having a day of rest on Sunday. Now, once again, did the Christians do that because of anti-Semitism? 
No, not at this point, I don't think. Is there anti-Semitism in the church? Yeah, there is some anti-Semitism in the church. There's no doubt about that. I don't think that there is any doubt about that. Um, but I don't think it's the kind of anti-Semitism that we think of. It wasn't white hoods and burning crosses, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's not like it's not like white supremacy hate of Jews that we have today. Uh, it's it's a little different, and we'll get into that in just a second. So let's keep going. <coughs> Pardon me with this email. At the first council of Nicaea, this is the email, by the way, at the first council of Nicaea, they intentionally changed the celebration of Messiah's death and resurrection out of anti-Semitism from Passover to Easter. Okay, let's hold here. This is a statement that attempts to wrap up an extremely large amount of theology into one sentence. And I don't think it it is... Uh, I, I certainly don't think that uh, the John 17 project is trying to be uh, untruthful here. That's not what I think at all. But I don't think that this is, I don't think this statement has hit the mark. And this is the reason why. What is being referenced here is the Quattrodeciman con controversy. For those who don't know, the Quattrodeciman means 14ers or the 14. So this would be... Ultimately, this goes back to our discussion about the Passover. Obviously, the Passover is supposed to be celebrated on Nisan 14 going into Nisan 15. And so when the church started celebrating, there became this rift. And this is documented in uh, Eusebius. Eusebius, uh, can we trust Eusebius? I don't think we can trust Eusebius all the time. He is talking about things that happened 200 to 250 years before him. However, with that said, the Quattrodeciman controversy is well documented in his time, not just by him. There's other writers that talk about the Quattrodeciman controversy as well. And so I think that he, we stand on pretty decent ground when we look at uh, uh, Eusebius and his view of the Quattrodeciman um, controversy. Okay, with that said, so what's going on here? So uh, let's break this down. What you have is you have the, you, okay, both Judaism and Christianity have a fast before the Passover, before, uh, so for Christians, it's a, uh, a fast up until the banquet or the meal of Christ, okay? And so the question is, for Christians, should this be done leading up, should we break the fast when Christ ate the Passover? Or should we break the fast when he rose from the dead? In other words, should we be fasting while he was in the ground? Or should we fast up until the point where he ate the Last Supper? Now, there is, uh, so Paul, uh, uh, Polycrates, uh, he he actually says that, uh, that Christ was, and he says that he's following John and that he, and so Eusebius places Christ's death on the 14th when the lambs are dying. There is a lot that could be said about this. I don't want to get into it. I think that he's actually simply misreading John. And uh, I don't think that that's actually what John said. Anyway, I think the original controversy comes in to when should we break the fast? Should we break the fast when Christ is, is uh, eating his meal, his last supper, and therefore we should eat at the same time that he did, which would be on Nisan 14, hence the name Quadradesmin. There is one region that says, yes, that's when we should break the fast. And so we're going to break the fast on the 14th Nisan. Hence, they're called the Quadradesmin or the, the 14ers, essentially, is how we could translate it. So you got the 14ers over here who want to break this fast on the 14th of Nisan. And then the rest of the church, basically everybody else says, no, 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 no. We want to break the fast when he's risen. So we're going to break it on Sunday morning, which is Easter. We're going to call it Easter for now. And so this is the controversy, when to break the fast. Interestingly, you have the, at the same time going on, you have the Jewish, uh, the Jewish sects essentially uh, starting to fast. They call it the fast of the firstborn. And so even in our modern time, you have the fast of the firstborn, the Jews fast up until the 14th of Nisan. So we have this parallel. Anyway, so back to the Council of Nicaea. At the Council of Nicaea, they intentionally changed the celebration of Messiah's death and resurrection out of anti-Semitism. Once again, I don't think that's what's going on. Now, I'm going to read Eusebius here in a few seconds. Actually, our our brother here uh, actually 
uh, post a link to this for us, to this Eusebius for us. And so we'll read that. But ultimately what's happening, I think at the Council of Nicaea, once again, I think that Constantine comes into the Council of Nicaea. He sponsors the Council of Nicaea. And why does he do that? He does this to unify the church. And right now you have two major schisms in the church. One of those is the Arian controversy, right? And we've talked about this at length. This is one of my one of my favorite parts of the of the Council of Nicaea, whether it's legend or true, who knows? But Santa Claus, Saint Nick's come Saint Nick comes up. He slaps Arius in the in the middle of the of the uh, Council of Nicaea. He gets put in prison for it until the council is over, right? Ultimately, Arius gets excommunicated for this uh, at after the first council of Nicaea, however, is really a soft excommunication. He's actually allowed back into the church. That's neither here nor there. Um, but Constantine is trying to unite the church and he's trying to put to rest this Arian controversy. The other thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to solidify, okay, well, are we going to, it, it looks like there's this rift. In fact, the Quatradecimans wanted to actually excommunicate people who, who weren't gonna celebrate with them. So Constantine comes in, he wants to unify. And so what he does is he tries to unify this day, whether I don't think it was Constantine. I think it was the Council of Nicaea. They're trying to unify on this day. I want to stop again. I want to go back uh, and look at the chat room just to make sure I'm not missing anything. How do I fully understand what it means that Christ is my Sabbath rest if I don't keep the Sabbath? Good. Yeah, that's a good point. The whole point to all of this is that knowing the history of the of Christianity is key. I agree. Uh, I think it's James White has said before that the uh, the best per, the, like the person who's going to do apologetics the best is the person who knows the original language and the, and a person who knows the history. Okay, um, I have no frame of reference. Uh, okay, sorry. I know normally what I'm doing is I'm actually checking the chat room while uh, while Rob is talking, but since Rob isn't here, I have to do it while you guys watch. Okay. Um, yeah, Abraham Heschel's book, The Sabbath. Abraham Heschel was a, uh, a 20th century uh, Orthodox Jew. He is not a believer, but boy, oh boy, is his book on the Sabbath really good. Um, Passover is on the 14th period. It's a one-day event. The rest of that time is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, not according to the not not according to the Synoptic Gospels. They call that the, the feast of, they call the 14th the feast of unleavened bread. So by the first century, this has been well documented by scholars, by the way, by the first century, uh, the writers of the apostolic scriptures, that is the apostles, which means Christ as well, ha see the first day and the, the preceding festival as one festival. So, I, I mean, that's how I see it too. I don't see, uh, I don't see this as two separate festivals. And even if you do, they are obviously you can't separate them. Okay, let's get back. So um, basically, I don't think that this is out of anti-Semitism. And once again, we'll read this piece from Eusebius here in just a second because I can already hear the John seventeen project saying, "Wait, wait, wait, go read what I what I uh, posted in here because it specifically talks about the Jews." We'll get to it in just a second. Okay, so uh, do they? So this, this is really like everywhere except for like Germany and America calls Easter Pascha. And why do they do that? They do that because the, the celebration, the, the Lord's banquet that they are celebrating after this feast, it, they have decided that it should be celebrated when he rises from the dead. This, did, this didn't come about. I am convinced this did not come about because of Ostera or Easter or anything like that. It didn't come about because of a, of a pagan festival. Constantine didn't say, hey, we worship some pagan goddess. And so we're just going to, we're, we're going to, uh, you know, celebrate that, but we're going to call it the resurrection of Christ. That's not how it happened. Uh, it happened through a lot of theological debate and it happened at the Council of Nicaea. And I don't think it was because of anti-Semitism. Uh, at least not the anti-Semitism, not the way that we think of anti-Semitism today. Okay, let's keep going. Later, this is uh, the John 17 Project again. Later, councils made observing the Sabbath for believers illegal as well as the rest of God's appointed times. This is true. This happened uh, at a council. This uh, happened at the Council of Laodicea. We'll read that in just, well, actually, I'll just read it now. Uh, this is on Canon 29. 
by the way, this council happened in 363 to 364. So this actually, um, this happens long after the, uh, the Council of Nicaea and after Constantine becomes a Christian. So this is the canon 29 of the Council of Laodicea. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. This is actually a really interesting piece of history. And the reason why is because is this anti-Semitic? Yeah, there is some anti-Semitism here, I think. But once again, maybe not in the way that we think. However, ultimately what this shows is that you had... Why did they have to command this at the Council of La Laodicea? Why did they have to do that? The answer is because you had a significant amount of Christians still observing the Sabbath. You had you had Christians advocating for the observance of the Sabbath and probably the festivals. And so this shows that even up into the middle of the fourth century, after the middle of the fourth century, you have Christians observing the Sabbath and observing uh, the and and trying to advocate for the keeping of Torah. And this is why the Council of Laodicea has to come in and say, stop doing that. They see it as Judaizing. Now, this could be, this is ultimately where the uh, the question of anti-Semitism comes in. Is it anti-Semitic anti because they hate the Jewish people, because they hate a race? I don't think that's actually what's going on. Is it anti-Semitic? Yes, it's anti-Semitic in that they're against the Jewish people. They don't. They see a complete break between Israel and the church. They don't see. They think that God has rejected Israel and rejected those people. In that, I would I would say, yeah, there is some anti-Semitism there. But I don't think it's because they're like, oh, those descendants of Jacob, we just hate their blood. That's not like today we see people that just they have hate because they hate a race, but. These kinds of decisions are more uh, theological. They're theological in the Jews killed Christ. The Jews did it because they have rejected God. God has thus rejected them, which, by the way, we know is not true, not the case. But this is the thinking of the church. God has rejected them because they killed the Christ and they will not accept Christ. And because of that, their religion is false. Thus, we want to separate from this religion as much as possible. That's the progression that I see from the church. I don't see we hate the Jewish people because, because they're descended from Jacob, or we hate them because we're the true, we have the true blood in us. I don't, I don't see it like that. And I'm more than happy to see. Uh, now, is there some of that in the church? Absolutely. You know, by the time you get to to Luther and against the Jews. I think that the same kind of thing is going on. He is so frustrated with the fact that the, the Jews won't accept Christ. He doesn't know what to do with it. His response is absolutely anti-Semitic. I don't think that we can say that it's not. Uh, he advocates for things that are not only uh, against the Bible, but just str straight against all Christianity, uh, both written in the scriptures and in tradition. There's no, it's, it's awful. Anyway, okay, so... Uh, later councils made observing the Sabbath for believers illegal as well as the rest of God's appointed times. Uh, by the way, this the Council of Laodicea was not an official council of the church until later. It didn't become official until later. So um, I think that they, and remember that the councils are very regional. So I think that this happens in Laodicea and it takes a long time for it to catch on. So I think that we see the observance of the Sabbath by Christians even later into the fifth century. Do you think that replacing biblical feasts with pagan ones, such as making the, the day of the sun worship instead of Sabbath, gives any credibility to the idea that pagan holidays were turned into Christian ones? I don't see it that way. And I know that there are a lot of people who are, gonna, um, who are going to push against that. I just don't see the church saying, hey, we have a pagan festival. Now, I have argued that uh, there might be some holdover from from the the sun god of Constantine before he converts into the uh, into the Christian belief of the Roman Empire later. So, for instance, I think the best thing that we would be able to point to would be Christmas. And I know all of the arguments. I've studied this at length. I know all of the arguments by um, people like Michael Jones at uh, at. Uh, what? Uh, anyway, everybody knows who I'm talking about. Um, 
And I've seen, I've read books on this. There are some really good books from Christians who say that it's not pagan and they show a progression. With that said, I still think that there is, uh, that there is maybe some holdover from the, uh, from the Roman sun worship into, now it needs to quickly be said, I'm not necessarily saying that they took a specific holiday and said, we're going to, we're going to just celebrate this holiday on this day. I think that there's good reason why the Christians, maybe not good reason. I think that there's reasons why the Christians placed December 25th as the, and actually first it was in January, but um, why they placed Christ's birth that there, I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong, but at the same time, I don't think it was malicious. I don't think that they were trying to worship uh, the sun God by placing it there. Now, we're, customs brought in from other traditions. I think that's the best uh, place that we could possibly see that happening. I don't see that happening necessarily in Easter. However, the Easter bunny and Easter eggs would probably be the most uh, the, the, the most obvious place to start if we wanted to argue that. Okay, back to this email. So uh, I, I don't see Easter as being, I, I, in no way do I see Easter as being a fertility uh, rites or fertility uh, festival of pagans that they just said, hey, we're going to start celebrating it here because Constantine is now a, a Christian. I, there is, I've seen zero evidence for that. Zero. Um, and so, I mean, I'm still, I'm still willing to see any evidence. I just have never seen it. Okay, let's go back to the chat room real quick. So we need a different turn than anti-Semitism, something that's specifically theological rather than ethnic, ethnic, ethnically loaded. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think that when... I don't see many uh, scholars saying that pe that the people just hated the Jews. Scholars oftentimes are more... Uh, are more looking at uh, the history of what the theological debates are. Augustine was clearly anti-Semitic. Yeah, I, I would agree with, with the no. Once again, we have to ask, why was Constantine uh, anti-Semitic? I mean, he might have straight up hated Jewish people. He may have. Once again, I think that that's, uh, you know, I think that that's something that we would need to study. I'm not just going to accept that Constantine, or that Augustine rather, was an anti-Semite in the terms of he just hated a race. I think that his place of anti-Semitism, once again, may also come from a theological point of view. But I could be wrong on that. I have not studied Augustine uh, that much to be able to say that or not. Um, however, I think my my teacher, my so I just took a class on Augustine, which was fantastic. It was really a very good class. And my teacher touched on that. I'd have to go back and see what he said. Okay, Lee says, all the quadradecimans I can find observed the first day of the week. Can anyone share any that didn't to contribute to my research project? Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lee is actually writing on the uh, quadradecimans right now, if I remember correctly. Okay. But an Ethiopian monk uh, saw an issue in his church and started teaching the sanctity of the uh, Shabbat and eventually gained enough traction and reformed his church. There is evidence uh, my dad has a great book in his library. There is evidence that the Celtic church celebrated the Saturday uh, Saturday Sabbath into the 10th century. So, and I think that uh, Bakiaki is one of the scholars who has traced, now he's Seventh-day Adventist, but Bakiaki uh, traced the, uh, the celebration of the Seventh-day Sabbath all the way from Christ into the 20th century. If I remember correctly, he has a book uh, where he traces that. And so there's evidence that, that there has been a remnant of Christians who have continually celebrated the uh, the Sabbath on Saturday. Hang on just a second. I'm trying to keep up with the uh, chat room. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's sad how Luther took such a hard turn away from upholding Yah's word. I'm convinced that uh, Luther had mental illness, and I think that we see a progression of that. Uh, certainly a bipolar certainly bipolar. Uh, he seems to be able to talk about Christ in one breath and then all of a sudden turn around and, and tell people that they're essentially the scum of the earth. Um, okay. Let's go back. Okay. So 
below is a link to the Catholic Encyclopedia on Constantine. If you look at section 18, so this, I don't know if that's actually, this is not, this is in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Um, this is on the New Advent site. And if you are at all familiar with any, um, hang on just a sec. I'm sorry, Jason, I'm trying to show your comment. I'm not sure why it's not allowing me. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, New Advent is a Catholic site. They have the entire Catholic Catechism. They have the entire Catholic Encyclopedia. They have almost all of the councils, if not all the councils up there. It's actually, I mean, I'm not in any way advocating for Catholicism, but if you're doing any research and need to know what the Catholics believe, uh, newadvent.org is a amazing site, and the Catholics have put a lot of money and a lot of time into it. The place that uh, that the uh, John 17 project is referencing here is actually the works of Eusebius, which is up on newadvent.org. So if you'd like to read that, you can. Uh, this is in chapter 18. Hang on, just a second. I want to. He uses the word pronomian, and I want to see what he says. If you look at section 18, it spells out the anti-Semitism of the First Council of Nicaea and, uh, and Constantine. Thanks for your, the show and helping. Okay, so this is what Eusebius says. In chapter 18, he says, at this meeting, talking about the uh, the Council of Nicaea, at this meeting, the question concerning the most holy day of Easter was discussed, and it was resolved by the united judgment of the, of the present that this feast ought to be kept by all and in every place and on one and the same day. Okay, right here, we have Eusebius actually focuses this entire debate. So what he's doing is he's actually giving us background. And this background is to the Quadradeciman controversy. He talks a lot about the Quadradeciman controversy in his writing. So he's talking about the fact that the council wants to unify the church on a day, whether it's on the 14th of Nisan or the following Sunday. By the way, this, for those who don't know, this is why the church celebrates Easter on the Sunday within the uh, festival of Passover is because of the Quadradeciman controversy. If by chance, the 14th of Nisan falls on a Sunday. The the church actually moves the celebration of Easter to the next Sunday. Um, and they do that because of this. They don't want to, because of the Council of Nicaea, they don't want to celebrate at the same time as the Jews. Is that anti-Semitic? Yeah, there might be some anti-Semitism in there, but let's listen to what Eusebius says and the reason why I think that it's more than just hating Jewish people. Let's go on. For what can be more becoming or honorable to us than that this feast from which we date our hopes of immortality should be observed unfailingly by all alike. According to, the, to one ascertained order and arrangement. So right here, he's saying the whole point of this is not that we hate the Jews, I don't think but that, in fact, we all be united in our faith, something that Constantine is really very concerned about. And first of all, it appeared unworthy, uh, an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defied their hands, uh, defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore, and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. Okay. Paul says this. This is not just Eusebius. Paul says this. How blind you are. You killed Christ. You killed the one who come, who came, the cornerstone. You've rejected him. Paul says this throughout. So Paul has three major uh, speeches in the book of Acts. And this is exactly what he says to the Jews. You are blind. You have, you have rejected the one that uh, has come. And, and we see this even with Stephen, right? So Paul and Stephen, they walk through the history of Israel and how God has promised all the way from Moses that the Messiah would come and save his people. But the Jews have rejected him and in fact they've killed him. And now the guilt is, now they, they have blood on their hands of the one that they've been waiting for. So at this point, I think what Eusebius is saying is the exact same thing. In other words, the, the, it's, it, Therefore, deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. They're blind because they have, they have rejected the Christ. And so their theology is wrong. I think that's what he's saying here. For we have it 
preserved from the very day of the Passion until the present time. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. For, bre for brethren, let us with one consent adopt this course and withdraw ourselves from all participation in their baseness. For their boast is absurd indeed that it is not in our power without instruction from them to observe these things. Uh, for how should they be capable of forming a sound judgment? Who, since their uh, parisidal guilt in slaying their Lord, have been subject to the direction, not of reason, but of ungoverned passion, and are swayed by every impulse of the mad spirit that is in them. Right now, I mean, people look at this and say, this is super anti-Semitic. I see this as Eusebius saying, these people have rejected Christ, and therefore their religion is a religion of demons. That's what I see. Now, is there anti-Semitism in this? I'm not saying that there couldn't be anti-Semitism in this. Does this lead to anti-Semitism? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this this kind of language does lead to anti-Semitism in the later church. And I think that we see this at the Council of Laodicea. Once again, they're saying we don't want anyone trying to mingle these two different views. That is the one that the Jews believe that, uh, that Jesus is not the Christ and the true religion, which we believe. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to separate these. Is that right? No, it's not right. And this ultimately comes down to covenant. This comes down to the idea of this comes even to the to the to the theology of the church today. And I'm not talking about the Catholic Church. If we look at the theologies of the church of the wider church today, one of the things that the church continues to get hang, hung up on is the physical people of Israel. And this is where you have dispensationalism versus covenant theology. I think that this is probably one of the biggest hangups within Christianity. Christianity as a whole does not does not uh, know what to do with the physical people of Israel. And I think that we see this start with Eusebius. So I don't want to just give him a pass here and be like, oh, it's, it's okay. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I see what Eusebius is saying here as much more theological than it is a hatred of a people group. In other words, let's ask this question. Do you think if Eusebius had a Jew come into his congregation and say, hey, I want to accept Christ, do you think he'd be like, get out of here, you're a Jew? I don't think that that's what's going on. I think he would he would be like, yeah, come on in. Let's talk about Christ. So I, I see him pushing against, and, and the Council of Nicaea pushing against the idea that the Jews have rejected Christ and therefore they have, uh, they have been stripped out of the covenant membership. In the early church's mind and in the church's mind much of today, to them, that means that God has rejected his people. There's a huge problem with this. And the huge problem is, is that God has made promises to physical Israel. And so we have to see that God will fulfill his promises to physical Israel. And so this is where dispensationalism, although I thoroughly disagree with dispensationalism, this is the one thing that the dispensationalists have tried to do. They've tried to reconcile how you have physical Israel and how you have the church. Are they different? And what dispensationalism wants to say is, yes, God just has, deals with people, different people in different time periods or different dispensations. And there was the, the dispensation of law, which was dealing with Israel. And now we're in the church age, which is the dispensation of grace. And once the rapture happens and all the believers get taken away, then God will once again deal with Israel. He'll deal with law. So um, anyway, let's just keep going. I want to I want to give full uh, disclosure of this of this work by uh, Eusebius. Hence, it is, and I think there's a word or two in here that I cannot pronounce, so I apologize. Hence, it is that on this point as well as others, they have no perception of the truth, so that being altogether ignorant of the truth, adjustment of this question. <coughs> they sometimes celebrate Easter twice in the same year. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I think this might be a misunderstanding of the idea that you can celebrate, those who miss Passover can celebrate it a month later. I could be wrong. I haven't looked into it anymore, but I think that that's what he's talking about. Is the And the Torah prescribes this, right? This is This is in his Bible. And he thinks that it's, is a Jewish custom to celebrate Easter twice. And and he's obviously uh, mixing the two, Easter and Passover. He's seeing them as one in the, in the same. He's not seeing Easter as a pagan holiday and 
and Passover is a Jewish holiday. He is seeing uh, the Jews celebrating, quote unquote, Easter the same. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to find my place. We must consider, too, that a discordant judgment in a case of such importance and respecting such religious festival is wrong. For our Savior has left us one feast in commemoration of the day of our deliverance. What are they talking about? They're talking about the Eucharist. They're talking about do this in remembrance of me. So by this point in time, the church has already adopted do this in remembrance of me as Christ. And I think that this is early. I think that by the, the end of the first century, you have uh, this idea that Christ has instituted something um, something new. I mean the day of the most holy passion, and he was willed, and he has willed that his Catholic Church should be one, the members of which, and once again we go back to this idea of unity. So, he, so I think that Eusebius and the Council of Nicaea are more, they're more worried about unity of the church than they are about hating Jewish people. That's how I see this. However, scattered in many and diverse places, are yet cherished by one pervading spirit. That is by the will of God. So, so on and so forth. Uh, I don't think he talks anymore about the Jews. So all of this to say, once again, I want to make it really clear because I want people to understand. I'm not saying that there was no such thing as anti-Semitism in the early church. I, I do think that there was some anti-Semitism in the, in the early church. What I am, but what I am saying is that I don't think that this, anti, what, what people might see this as anti-Semitic if that is the case, I don't think it's coming from a place of hating a people group. I think it's coming from a place of seeing a religious sect or a religious group of people, that is the Jews, rejecting Christ. It comes down to theology more than it comes down to um, anything else. Okay, let's go back to the chat room real quick. Now, once again, I am happy to see any evidence. I could be totally wrong on this. This, is an, this has not been like my focus. I haven't centered my focus of study on on uh, Eusebius or even on Constantine. So I acquiesce to the scholars on this. Uh, Lee in the chat room says, Melito of Sardis, Pascha Liturgy is available in the book called On Pascha. I actually have it on my bookshelf right back here. Uh, Melito uh, of Sardis, if you would like to know what they believed. Yeah, and actually, if you look at Melito of Sardis, what is he doing? He's giving Passover liturgy. In fact, I've argued uh, many times that the Jewish tradition of the Afikomen actually is first mentioned in, Meli in uh, uh, Melito of Sardis. He uses the term Afikomenas, which means the coming one. And I think that the, Jew, the, the Jews actually adopt Melito of Sardis, his, they, they adopt some of the Christian uh, tradition, say we had it first. And why do I think that? Because if you ask Jews today, what does Afikomen mean? They don't know. They'll say, oh, it means dessert. It doesn't mean dessert. It means coming one. And so I think that this is clearly a Christian uh, tradition that has been brought into the, the Passover. But what Lee is highlighting here, and this is true, is that uh, Melito of Sardis is, is still celebrating Passover. And he's early. Uh, the John 17 Project, welcome to the chat room. Thank you for joining. Caleb, I will email you some more evidence about this, but there is a lot of anti-Semitism from many of the so-called church fathers. Once again, I'm not saying that there isn't anti-Semitism. However, I do think that most of the, most, not all, most of the anti-Semitism that we read in the church fathers comes from a place of, uh, of theological difference. That is that the Jews killed Christ. Now, we could go down this path and say this, that there is a hatred that comes for the Jews because they they uh, killed Christ. And the notion is that, that God rejected them and therefore we should reject them as well. That's where the anti-Semitism comes. And certainly, I mean, we see that the, I mean, even in the modern times, the SS uses Luther's work and uh, to justify the killing of the Jews. So certainly, I think that does anti is anti-Semitism bred out of this? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it's not. But when we look at Eusebius and we look like and we look at the Nicene Council, they're not saying, hey, we just hate Jews, so let's let's be separate from them. It, it is meticulously theological. They're looking at it from a theological perspective. And ultimately, just to answer the question that is put forward by the John 17 project. This is the ultimate question. 
Um, do you think that replacing biblical feasts with pagan ones, such as making the day of sun worship instead of Sabbath, gives any credibility to the idea that the pagan holidays were were turned into Christian ones? My answer to that is no. That's the old. That's the end of this whole this whole uh, show. Is that I don't believe that that what was presented here gives credence to the notion that the early Christian church is adopting pagan festivals. Even the switch from Saturday to Sunday, this is a theological uh, shift. It's not a, it's not a let's celebrate the sun God and, and call it Christian. I don't think that that's what's happening. Once again, if we see any of that happening, I would say that our, the first place we need to start is Christmas. That is the one place that I would say we might see some some pagan festival festival celebrations being attached to a celebration of of Christian origin. Now, do I think that Christian that that Christmas comes from this took a long time, by the way, and people have seen this progression from 10 years ago when when Rob and I started this show to now. Do I believe that uh, that the church said, hey, we have a festival on December 25th. Let's just call it Christ's birth and celebrate it the way that we were celebrating it. I don't think that that's what happened. I think that the church fathers actually calculate wrongly when Christ was born and they place it on first in January and then they roll it back to December 25th. So I, I don't see that as being, hey, let's celebrate a, a pagan festival. So ultimately, the, the, the question of whether or not I think this gives credence to pagan festivals um, being turned into Christian celebrations, I don't see it. All right, let's go back to the chat room real quick. Uh, inspiring philosophy, that was it. Sorry. Sorry, Michael. Sorry, Michael. Uh, as inspired but possibly inspired commentary on what Yan Yeshua has said of themselves. Okay. Many churches still celebrate Pentecost. That is true, at least to some degree. I agree. Lee says, it seems to me Melito's view on Pascha seems to be based on his misreading of John's chronology. I completely agree with that. Yes, that is true. This rhetoric seems like the typical stuff that comes when you first come to Torah. You know, I I have certainly been uh, I victim to it or I've been guilty of it. You can say it either way. Um, and the reason why is because just like we talk about Calvinists coming into the cage stage. What is the cage stage? For a Calvinist, the cage stage is when a uh, person becomes a Calvinist and they want to tell everyone about it. So they go out and they, they use the Bible as a sledgehammer to try to convince people that Calvinism is the way to do it. A lot of times bridges are burned. Well, we see this probably even more so in the Torah movement. Why? Because people come to the notion that they should be keeping Torah, which I agree is absolutely true. But many people who come to this understanding not only want to beat their Christian brothers and sisters over the head with their Bible, but they will actually disassociate with people who don't celebrate the Sabbath, even though just a couple years ago they weren't celebrating the Sabbath. And so, I mean, I think that the cage stage, uh, we call them Torah terrorists, the Torah terrorist stage, and I am certainly guilty of this. The Torah terrorist stage is one that is is real. The problem is that a lot of people don't come out of it. If you start if you start looking at the Hebrew roots movement, the Messianic movement, the full Torah movement, whatever you want to say, one Torah movement, you have people who are have have not realized like, hey, maybe I shouldn't be a total jerk to Christians, or maybe I shouldn't call Christians pagans, or um, I mean, maybe I shouldn't disassociate with with everyone who's who's a Christian, or maybe I shouldn't say that Christians aren't saved because that's I mean, there's so many things that we could say about this. Ultimately, I think that's true. I think a lot of people come into the come into the the Torah movement. They accept things like fossilized customs, or they start watching Michael Rood or Jim Staley or whatever, and and they just think that everything that they're getting fed is is truth and it's all garbage instead uh, instead of listening to the bible and listening to the truth they're they're getting their ears tickled and ultimately i think that i think a lot of people in the tour movement are waking up to that and this is where you're starting to see a lot of a lot of uh, people get some really good education okay i have talked for a very long time look at that more than an hour more than an hour. I did, and I had two other emails I could have talked about as well. That's funny. 
Okay, um, let me get back here. I am, however, aware that history of anti-Semitism in the church has and it still does affect thinking and teaching of scripture. I agree with that. But once again, so this is a really good comment. This is this is a really good comment. The John 17 Project, if you didn't hear it, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read the whole thing. I am, however, aware that a history of anti-Semitism in the church has and still does affect thinking and teaching of scripture. I agree with that. 100% I do agree with that. But once again, we need to look at where that comes from. So for instance, and I'm not trying to justify any anti-Semitism, but for instance, uh, many of the churches that I have attended recently believe that the church has replaced Israel in some way, shape, or form. They might not come out and say that, but they believe that the church has replaced Israel. Does that come from a place of hating Jewish people? Does it come from a place of anti-Semitism? No. Is it anti-Semitic? Yeah, possibly. It does come from a place of anti-Semitism back in, in church history. But, and that ultimately stems from a, theolo a theology. It's not actually an anti-Semitism. Anti it comes from a theology which turns into anti-Semitism. And now it's kind of back into a theology, but it's an anti-Semitic theology in many senses. And so is this, you know, but would I say that those Christians are anti-Semitic? No, I'd never say that they're anti-Semitic. They don't hate Jewish people. They just think that the church has replaced Israel. Are they wrong? Yeah, they're wrong. They're wrong. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're anti-Semitic in the way that you and I would think anti-Semitic. Okay. Um, let's go back to this. And let's... I'm sorry for my choppy video. Hopefully, Lord willing, by next week, I will not have choppy video anymore. Um, so... 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. If you have disagreed with everything that I've said or if you've agreed with everything I've said, it doesn't matter. You can call that number. Tell me. Tell me all about it. And then you won't talk to me or Rob. You just get an answering machine. You can also shoot me an email, chegg at torahresource.com, C-H-E-G-G -G at torahresource.com. I'd be happy to, to read any emails that you guys want to send me. Please consider subscribing uh, to this YouTube channel and liking this video if you have benefited at all from it. All right. Uh, we hope and pray that uh, Rob gets whatever he needed to get done, done. And I hope and pray that this conversation has uh, benefited you in some way, shape, and form. And uh, that uh, you've come closer to Christ because of it. Ultimately, um, I hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, Messiah. Jesus.